I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. So this is the uh, February session 2021, the third talk called Sacred Ashes. So uncertainty. We live in its atmosphere. We, we breathe it. Uncertainty hums in our bodies. The next perpetually out of reach. Always we are existing on the lip of the next. Wide openness, wide unknown. Possibility always remaining so. Uncertainty. We're always on the lip of the next because the future too is always vanishing. It's nature being unknowable possibility. Potential for something to happen always happening. The next moment arrives but that arrival is not an arrival because the present in presenting is the past. The next moment in arriving is not an arrival because the present moment presenting is the past. That's the meaning of now, right? So then what's the past? Well, it's vanishing too. It doesn't stay still. We live in this atmosphere of vanishing. Actually, we, we bravely live a life in this atmosphere of vanishing. To step into and to live out this life where there's nowhere to truly find a toehold is itself an act of, of courage. Vanishing. Each of these syllables vibrating the air, resonating this body, resonating yours, gone beyond as it blossoms. But where gone? And at the same time as is vanishing, there are patterns. Breath is a pattern of sensation. Each breath is singular as a snowflake. As we become more intimate with the breath, the richness and the ever fresh texture of each breath becomes more, more apparent. Each one singular as a snowflake and yet a breath is a breath. You can rely on it not to be a heartbeat. The body is a pattern. Actually, it's probably better to do, you know, verb tense. It's a patterning. The body is a patterning. A leg does not become a tentacle. But neither does a leg arrive as a thing. Because it's happening. It's always happening. You can only know it because it's happening. So each thing within its truth demonstrates its truth. Vanishing, evading, conclusion, pure activity. From a bird's eye view, the patterns of life are unwavering. The body's cycles, for example, in-breath and out-breath. It only stops once. Hunger, acquisition. Consumption, digestion, metabolization, excretion, repeat. We can rely on that. Or we're very happy when we can rely on that. Birth, aging, decay. Pleasure will come and it will go. Pain visits and departs. Love stays for a while. Aggression and conflict come onto the stage. Night and day alternate. Even though the variations are clear, even more clear to us in this era of climate crisis, 
The seasons replace each other, summer replaced by fall, replaced by winter. The pattern doesn't change. So life's patterns are unwavering. Then what are we talking about when we think or say uncertainty? It's not only death and taxes. The patterns are unwavering. What is it that we're uncertain about? We feel uncertainty. We just, we don't only think uncertainty. Well, with everything, we don't with certainty know when. Whatever it may be. With everything, we don't with certainty don't know how. We don't know how it will be. We may or may not think we know why, but that can slip away from us. Suppose the source of uncertainty is wanting certainty. And what to do about it? Being vanishing, being always on the, the phantom thin lip of the next, this lack of control over what happens to us, those we love, the world we care about, without some kind of practice leads to anxiety. Of course, we want to soothe it. Otherwise, we're indifferent to the suffering being we call me, or they, or them. There's so many ways we soothe our uncertainty. For me, investing in beliefs came to mind. Consider beliefs about death. How do they help? How do they soothe? If someone tells me I'm eternal, I can relax somewhat a terror of not existing. If someone tells me I'm a body and a brain, I might find solace in the belief that it's just lights out, came over, on to off. I might be told if I'm good, death is a door to the good place. If I'm bad, it's a door to the bad place. And so I plan accordingly and live in such a way. Here's a belief about death from the poet Jim Harrison. This poem is called Death Again. Let's not get romantic or dismal about death. Indeed, it's our most unique act along with birth. We must think of it as cooking breakfast. It's that ordinary. Break two eggs into a bowl or break a bowl into two eggs. Slip into a coffin after the fluids have been drained, or better yet, slide into the fire. Of course, it's a little hard to accept your last kiss, your last drink, your last meal, about which the condemned can be quite particular, as if there could be a cheeseburger sent by God. A few lovers sweep by the inner eye, but it's mostly a placid lake at dawn, mist rising, a solitary loon call, and staring into the still, opaque water. We'll know as children again all that we are destined to know, that the water is cold and deep, and the sun penetrates only so far. Human culture is a soothing of uncertainty, a collective coping with uncertainty, making the best of it we know how, uh, agreeing to live in certain ways and make certain contributions so we can have some semblance of what we call security, making the best of uncertainty as we know how. Isn't the mind doing this? Does your mind do this? You see this in the collective. Investing in the patterns that support well-being. Investing in the patterns that keep us from too much reckoning with the extent of the unknown. 
There seems to be a capacity for uncertainty that we can develop, but we tend to only have so much at a time. However, in Zen practice, we're doing something else with uncertainty. We're on the lip of the next, always, and we are the dawning of this vanishing moment, always. Happening and vanishing are simply different vantage points on the same, whatever you want to call it. Happening and vanishing are just different ways of looking at the same moment. So things are always happening. We are always happening. Something will always happen. And we are living in the knowledge that something has happened and something will happen. It never gets settled. It never comes to rest. You never get to exit or transcend this condition. And when you are a tenderly enfleshed being limited to one point in the vastness of time and space, limited in the scope of consciousness, it takes training to not have this viscerally felt potential energy of something can happen, something will happen, take on a valence of hope or fear. The mind, like a cup filled to the brim, ready to flow into hope or fear with the slightest tilt. So in Zazen, we settle into this on the lip of the next. Being, happening, vanishing. Settling into it becomes a vibrancy of presence. Uncertainty becomes an enlivening force. We transmute the anxiety of uncertainty. Present, past, and future always happening and always vanishing. And this is what we mean by now. And this is what we mean by Zazen. So let's say the first step of the path is relinquishing the groping for certainty. Relaxing into the unknown. Dying to the known. But relaxing into the unknown means a full-blooded, direct embodied knowing of this perpetual vanishing dawningness. We've been chanting this wonderful sutra, the wisdom of the hour of death. And if I could do my whole talk in the style of the way they chant it, I would love to do that. If you haven't heard the melody, you should, you should look it up. The noble Mahayana Sutra, the wisdom of the hour of death, in the language of India, someone said this is probably Sanskrit. In the language of Sanskrit, Aryataya Jana Nama Mahayana Sutra. Homage to all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Thus I have heard at one time the Blessed One was dwelling in the palace of the King of Gods in Akanishta and teaching the Dharma to the entire retinue when the Bodhisattva Mahasattva Akashagarbha prostrated to the Blessed One and asked them the following question. And Akasha Garba, Akasha is space. Space and Garba is like womb. So this is womb of space, womb of openness. Womb of openness asked the Buddha, O Blessed One, how should a Bodhisattva view the mind at the moment of death? So because we're on the lip of the next and we're vanishing and arising continually, this is the hour of death. We are continually living in the hour of death. This isn't just about some imagined moment when we're going to go from on to off. But right now, we are at the moment of death. The Blessed One replied, Akashagarbha, at the time of death, the Bodhisattva should cultivate the wisdom of the hour of death. 
So one way you could think of this is in a number of Buddhist traditions, part of the training is to prepare for death such that one can die in as much presence of mind as possible, with as much equanimity as possible. Some of the traditions believe that there is a very propitious moment when the body is dissolving and everything is basically coming apart, that at that moment there's an opportunity to more clearly recognize what we are. So training, not only for moment-by-moment dying, but for the actual time of death is something that our ancestors have really valued. So it continues, As for the wisdom of the hour of death, you should cultivate the perception of insubstantiality, since all phenomena are naturally pure. What does that mean? Insubstantiality, since all phenomena are naturally pure. This isn't pure versus impure. What's pure about the ungraspability about phenomena? What's pure about not being able to put your finger on anything? You should cultivate the perception of great compassion since all phenomena are contained within bodhicitta. To read that literally, since everything is happening within awakening mind, you should cultivate the perception of great compassion. You should cultivate the perception of referencelessness, not easy to say, harder to realize. You should cultivate the perception of referencelessness since all phenomena are naturally luminous. What is it to encounter this moment without comparing it to a previous moment? What is it to breathe this breath with no standard hanging in the mind of how the breath should be? What's possible then? What changes when our experiencing isn't filtered through contrast? You should cultivate the perception of utter non-attachment since all things are impermanent. That's interesting. How would you cultivate that? You can't hang on to anything anyway. Why do we need to cultivate non-attachment? You should cultivate the perception of not searching for Buddhahood elsewhere since the mind is wisdom when realized. That's so encouraging that when we know what the mind really is, that's awakening. We're looking for what we already are. The mind is wisdom when realized. Which mind? Which mind? So I'm saying the first step of the path is relaxing into the unknown, dying to the known. And you can think of it, you can tease it apart as a kind of linear process. So I want to present not quite stages, but in a way, let's call them little gates that we pass through one by one in order to come to this vibrancy of uncertainty. And maybe we proceed through these steps over the course of a day or an hour of practice or years. And maybe it's just one gesture of letting go. So the first is we are gathering or interrupting the streams of mind that are flowing outward. We are, we are interrupting the narration of linear time that the mind is habitually doing. That's the exhale when you sit on the cushion. You exhale completely. You let the breath out, and with that, let the mind drain out and, in a way, draw a line in the sand. Now I'm letting go of past and future. So having done that, then what is becomes available for direct experience. 
And then we tune into the wakefulness of the body or the breath or whatever your, your station of awareness is. Most of us need a station for awareness because something to sink the teeth into a little bit. So we turn, tur- tune into, turn's not a bad word, tune into the wakefulness of body or breath. I'm trying to be really precise about the language here. The breath is already wakeful. The body is already the happening of awareness. We can make so much struggle trying to get something up here, down there. Or we use language like get into the body, but that's not possible. You've never been apart from it. You are the body. And the body is awareness. So we tune into this as a fact. Simply put, feel your hand. And don't use your thoughts or the witness to feel your hand. Use your hand to feel your hand. Right there is the wakefulness of the body, the oneness of body and mind. So we tune into the wakefulness. We tune into body's presence. And of course, the challenge is staying tuned in. Staying tuned in. The next step, gate, is consenting to wakefulness in the whole body. Consenting to wakefulness in the whole body. I think this is really helpful to emphasize. In my own practice, in order to, let's put it this way, because I was not yet conscious of what was in my body, I disinhabited my body and did a kind of zazen where I was floating apart. I did a kind of meditation where mind was some dimension that was separate from belly, breasts, neck, head, limbs, etc. So first of all, we want this uh, dharma, this wakefulness to permeate our whole body, to penetrate our whole body, because we want it to permeate our whole being. We want everything to be encompassed in this light of dharma. Do you hear the seeming paradox? Why do you have to do that if the body is already wakefulness? That's a really good question. When we immerse the whole body in wakefulness, our energy is distributed evenly throughout our body. Our chi, our prana, our life force is evenly distributed. And one of the benefits of that is that all of the life energy that's in the brain triggering thoughts, there's less of it in there. And so rather than a concentrated mass of, I don't know what it's like, just imagine it's like electricity being trapped in this little bubble, who we sometimes think is the meditator, it's able to flow and suffuse the whole body. And so the mind naturally becomes quieter. And the whole range of our intelligence becomes available because this isn't the only mind. This heart is a mind, this belly is a mind, these feet and hand are a mind. I think you'll find once you habituate to it, it becomes more stable. You may be pervading the body and, yes, still highlighting the breath or highlighting the tanden, the hara, or whatever it may be. But nonetheless, the whole body. Now, why this is difficult, Descartes aside, is that it takes courage to feel in depth 
this body. It's no joke. The intensity of feeling that we consent to when we fully inhabit our body into its fibers. I've been mentioning that when there's even the slightest pullback because of the fear of the feeling, I had some butterflies before my talk, and I watched how there was this subtle pull away from my belly as if that would make me feel better. When there's the slightest pull away, that feeling in the body is a source of suffering. You are subjected to it. But in the moment of releasing that pull away, which you can do, there's no problem. You're at peace with the feeling. It is what it is. It's a happening. It's a vanishing. It has its texture. We may not love it, but it's not monstrous. So the courage of feeling really can't be, I wanted to say taken lightly. It's something very significant, as you know, as you endeavor to do so. Now, the question of trauma is a real question. And if you identify as someone with trauma, and everyone's traumatized to one degree or another, then you have to be the authority. You have to be the world's expert on your own trauma and your own capacity to fully inhabit the body and how much of that is the right thing. Because as Hogan Roshi has often said, the right thing in the wrong dose is the wrong thing. And yet if we read or work with someone who works with trauma, the medicine for trauma is consciously experiencing the feelings fully in the body. But it's no small matter. So that's the, that's the third gate. We're inhabiting the body. We're opening to the full scope of the body's wakefulness. And we we stabilize that. This is what we mean by concentration. Sustaining the tuning into the wakefulness of your being. Sustaining the wakefulness. And in tandem with that, and perhaps a next layer, is letting go of analyzing and labeling and distinguishing. We do that through amplified sensitivity. In the Mahamudra, they talk about attending more closely. Wakefulness is opening up the details of experience from within. We're noticing and letting die a temporary peaceful death, the part of us that insists on rationally and linguistically understanding everything. This is a thing. This part of us will kick and scream and insist on maintaining its safe vantage point of rational knowing. And what does it mean to let it die a peaceful death? Just don't pay attention to it. Just be actively indifferent to it. We're letting go of distinguishing. Lately, I've been teaching about how the dharma of sleep, of sleepiness, is a really potent gate. Because if we go into sleepiness, and you can try this, invite in sleep, 
but not to the point where you fall asleep. There's an indistinctness. There's a seamlessness. There's a oneness where all the things that, for example, in the body, the disparate parts that we feel so concretely, everything begins to melt into one happeningness. And eventually, inside and outside melt into one happeningness. So we're letting go of analyzing and labeling, and more subtly, we're letting go of distinguishing. Our forebears called it non-discrimination. In the darkness, there is light. So we're abiding in intimacy. Intimacy is abiding, and then we activate seeing impermanence. It's another strange thing. I don't understand. Why do we need to do that? Or maybe it's more accurate to say, why is it that when we intend to see impermanence more deeply, it reveals itself more clearly? Impermanence, one of those things that we go, oh yeah, impermanence. But the reality of it in our own skin is a whole other matter. So we, we, let's say, open the eye within the body to the reality of vanishingness. And of course, practice unfolds from there. This moment is life and death's way. This moment, which a little more accurately speaking, a little more, is in us rather than us in it. This moment is life and death's way. If the universe's laws are uniform, that is, if there's not a place you can go where all of a sudden the laws of the universe stop functioning, maybe that's possible. If they are uniform, then whatever we mean by life and death is exhibiting as this embodied moment. But what do we mean by life? What do we mean by death? What does it mean to say life when you've experienced nothing but life? We perpetually witness death and bear loss. We perpetually witness death and bear loss. The dying process is personally experienceable. I've heard that one can experience the dying process and we can observe it in others. But would you agree that by ordinary definition, death can't be experienced? If you can experience it, then aren't you alive? Then what is death? What are we saying when we say death? Is the moment we call death simply another moment on the lip of the next? We perpetually shed our skins and a new form is vanishing happening, maybe only microscopically different, maybe strikingly transformed. Is the moment we call death simply another moment on the lip of the next? I don't know. Could the universe go from on to off? Doing Zazen full-bloodedly, this could be our name, universe. That's your name. It's more accurate than Francis Joy or Brent or Cindy or Ursula. Universe. Can universe go from on to off? This is a question we're keeping lit the asking. 
to really ask this in that silent, curious way is beneficent. Each night we go to sleep and we wake up someone else. We say refreshed, renewed. The waking ego identity and all that it carries and is invested in, to some degree we're relieved of it. Each night we die to that person of sunlight consciousness. The, the submitting to sleep is a dying to waking consciousness that we do, most of us, every night. Going to sleep, we enter a nightly ritual of descent into the unknown, and we dream. I read a statistic recently that we dream two hours out of eight hours of sleep, If that's true, it shows you how much activity, how much life is going on in that realm that we just don't know anything about. So that adds adds up to be many years. The dreaming self has a long life, lots of life. We enter dream and our usual waking logic and orientation and sense of linear time vanishes. Who goes through the dream? We wake up and we say, I had this dream, but in that dream, were you really I in the same way? We didn't have the common understanding of where we were and what's happening and all of the burdens and desires and hopes that we normally carry. It feels like I, but it's not quite the waking self. That person was left behind. And the dream person dies into waking at the sound of the alarm. Sometimes that rebirth is quite a relief, and sometimes we are really not so happy about it. I was sharing with someone recently that I've had a few dreams in my life where there was the experience of perfect love, like absolutely perfect, flawless love with no fear about its loss, with no qualifications. And then waking, it was an agonizing birth. So sometimes we have minor waves or less, more than minor waves of grief for the loss of who we were or where we were upon waking. We mourn on the toilet or over coffee the death of the dream realm. Perhaps our bodies bear a continual process of grief for all the daily and nightly deaths. Maybe that's one of the things the Buddha was talking about, that life is dukkha. That to be alive is to be woven into this reality of the stress of loss because a living body loves Perhaps that's why it takes courage and is challenging to inhabit our bodies fully. We don't want to feel that thread of mourning. We don't want to metabolize that. That intimacy with the omnipresence of loss might alter us. Death sparking death. Death sparking birth. But we're made of death. We are made of death. It's like a mushroom rising out of a heap of decomposing matter. And when that mushroom decays and falls, it goes back into that heap and becomes the very stuff that the next mushroom rises up from. It's like a tree that's roots are nourished by its own ground fallen fruit and leaves. And the next blossoms arise from the stuff of its very own death. That's us. We're marked by the loss of significant loved ones. We're marked 
by the loss. And each life is marked in different ways. It can be felt as an enduring absence, the presence of a void, a haunting, unfinished business hanging in the air. The poet Andrew Frank says in a poem called Required Ending, I don't need any of this. Don't need this or this. Just this, this circumstance and this kindling. The circumstance and this kindling and that's all I need. And a match. The circumstance, this kindling and a match. And that's all I need. And a spark. The circumstance and kindling matches and spark. And this shiver. The circumstance, this kindling, a match, a spark, and a shiver. And that's all I need. Everything I need. I don't need another thing. The circumstance, kindling, a match, this spark, the shiver. And I don't need another thing except for you to bless my ashes. Except for you to bless my ashes. The loss of loved ones can be a very rough initiation into impermanence. It can be a betrayal that empowers. A piercing, sobering knowledge of fragility. So in this, the loss of love is performing an awakening function. We see different images of gods and goddesses like Kali and Shiva and Perses and Mars, the rug pullers and the status quo disturbers. They're performing a divine function. When we lose someone, it can perform this divine function. It betrays a naivete of endurance, ushering us into a more mature dance with life. A friend of mine spoke of a loved one. I can't recall where I heard this. Lost a loved one, and this person became more alive to them after their physical death. The presence of the beloved became more intimate. Again, consider, it's more accurate to say the moment is in us, not we're in the moment. Another poem from Andrew Frank. This one's called, A Death is the Most Shared Thing. A death is the most shared thing. Birds stop. Trees listen. The air is forced to attention. Heads lift. Germs shudder. The green of spring flinches nakedly, dashing from perspective. Hungry, hungry, facing our shades, greeting confusion, but now alert, with senses cleared, this eye unravels into marveling, treading into vital interest. Zen practice has something, for lack of a better word, a bit ruthless in it. We intentionally go through little deaths. We intentionally go through little deaths. It's already part of life's deal, but we make it conscious. Perhaps you could say we accelerate it. We let die, we help die the extraneous and the burdensome. Who or what says what is extraneous and burdensome in your life? Does that come from the inside? 
Does that come from the outside? We let die, we help die the extraneous and the burdensome. Perhaps you could say the inauthentic. So maybe we put a certain kind of greed on the chopping block. Bring that into the scope of our awareness. Or maybe we retract projections because we can really see the mind in action more clearly. You might find you let certain hopes starve on an open plane. Sometimes ways of being may need be sacrificed when stepping deep into practice. The artist leaves your life. Being the boss, being the expert leaves your life, only to be reborn later, distilled in their essence. As if by becoming ashes and coming back, they're more saturated in their own color. But the practice asks that this is in the way. And often it presents that very clearly. Both certainty and uncertainty can go MIA. You might find familiar modes of navigating life start to become feeble. They no longer work. They don't meet the arising situation. You can't lean on the old strategy. Or on the other hand, you could find parts of you that play small leave your inner community. You can't lean on them either. It's probably more accurate to say our practice seals the deal of what is already mostly dead. Now it's important not to do this kind of inquiry through the inner critic. You can sense the presence of the inner critic because it's myopic. It only sees what's wrong. It has no other perspective available. What comes up if you ask yourself, I invite you to do so right now, what needs to be let go of? What is already dying in me? What needs to be let go of? What is already dying in me? Sometimes it might be like there's already a corpse in the room and yet we haven't taken it out and given it a proper burial. What is already dying in my life? What needs to die? This question, this is a very compassionate question, can save us years of stale living. We inhabit the body more thoroughly through practice and knowledge of mortality more direct than the conceptual bubbles up. I think that's one of the things we can we avoid as we disinhabit the body is we're less in touch with the visceral sense of our own mortality. And so we can live in some kind of immortality fantasy, but in Zazen our immortality fantasies die. And we feel, we know, this drama I make myself the center of will not continue all that long. This drama I make myself the center of will not continue all that long. And there may be a grieving this, a time of reorientation, and then a new vista, an opening. A rebirth becomes possible, rising up from the ashes of the offered-up dreams. So Zazen and Session are a gate into dying consciously. If we agree to what this process is, not only do we appreciate it more, but we potentiate it. We midwife it. We help it along. This is a process of dying to the known. 
It's a process of shedding, of letting go and seeing, being open to what comes next without insisting that we have to know. So to bring it back to direct practice, we gather the mind in. We retract the fantasies of past and future. We tune into the body's presence, the breath's presence, sound's presence. We tune in. It's already unfolding. Just tuning into that unfolding. We consent to the whole body. That may be a gradual process and that may be all at once. I don't know. We let wither the mind of analyzing and labeling and distinguishing through indifference to it. It has a place, but Zazen is not its place. We're more interested in the vibrancy of being alive without being tugged by the past or the future. We open the eye within the breath, within the body, within the sound, within awareness itself, and we see impermanence. No matter where we turn, inside, outside, hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, feeling, emoting, it's all pure activity. You can only experience something that is vanishing. And then we abide in this whole body moment as activity. We let die the part of us that's waiting for something to happen, the part of us that's seeking for a better spiritual experience. So it's an honor to be on this journey with you and encourage you to just stay with the process. Stay with the process. Consent to the wakefulness of the whole body and let what unfolds unfold. There's nothing we can do about it, but we can consciously experience its unfolding. So let's do this wholeheartedly and consciously. Thank you.